There is therefore no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How was that achieved? The reality that there is no condemnation, because there is condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. It's an imminent reality. How then, though, is it possible? How is it certain, because it is certain, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? That's really the essence of our time together this morning. Point number one was the separating power of the gospel, and this is really what I wanted you to see. I wanted you, myself, to see the separating power of the gospel. Paul says in verse 1, he is set apart for the gospel of God. This very important and fundamental term, hagios, from the Greek language is what Paul uses here to point out the reality that when God saves one, he saves him as a result of the fact that he determined in eternity past to save him, and he didn't just save him unto an eternity of joy. He saved him unto a life that's set apart in this lifetime a life devoted to holiness. Paul then says that he has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Called as saints. The beloved, those with that particular redemptive love that Jesus Christ has granted to those that he calls saints. They're set apart. So the gospel separates. So point one was the separating power of the gospel. If you don't know that separating power, if your Christian life, if you can even call it that, started with some fleshly decision that you made for Jesus and you have no interest in, much less power in depicting the joy of Jesus Christ in victory over sin. And, and, and even worse, if you don't have that, but what you do have is the ability to pretend that you do. That's not the separating power of the gospel. Now, if you do have that, praise God. Thank God. Don't take credit for that. Don't take a shred of credit for that. Thank God that he has accomplished that in you. Point number two, the certain gratitude of one saved by the gospel. Paul shows this gratitude. I mean, who of all Christians could have taken credit for the great spiritual things that were accomplished via his life? Paul, but he didn't, as you know from Philippians 3. He took every single spiritual or religious accomplishment, and he said, I count it all as rubbish in view of what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, which he understood to have been a gift granted to him not something he accomplished. Paul took all of his spiritual accomplishments on his spiritual resume and ran it through a spiritual shredder and said, it's all garbage. Out it goes. But I rest in the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, he says in verse 11. Why? That you may be established. See, Paul loved Christians. He loved Christians. And he thanked God for them and for their faithfulness. He goes on to say, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Christians love to be around each other, not simply to talk about the weather, but to be strengthened for the sake of spiritual ministry one to another and to others. 
not just to each other, but to others. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's an expression of gratitude. I'm thankful for the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. Point number three, I want you to see the abandonment of wrath for inexcusable ingratitude and dishonor. The inexcusable ingratitude. You see this in our text. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. It's known within them. We say that God has written his existence on man's heart. Everyone who has ever lived knows that God exists. There are no atheists. There are those who want others to think that they are atheists. They want to not be accountable to God, but God disallows that because he's written his existence on man's heart. He's made it evident in him. But man is without excuse because God has made his existence evident inside man and outside of man in creation. And so, because they knew him but did not honor him and were not thankful to him, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And friends, let me tell you, the person who's not thankful for who God is and what he has done, the more he hears this truth, the more resistant and distant his heart becomes from actually living a life that's devoted to being set apart for the gospel. If he is committed to being unthankful for God and what he has done, the more truth he hears, the harder his heart gets. Professing to be wise, Paul says, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So he ends this section with an exclamation point, declaring the simple and clear reality that the abandonment of wrath falls upon those who are inexcusably ungrateful and dishonoring to God. Yes, it's inexcusable. Why do we say that? Because Paul says they are without excuse. And where did the problem begin? It began with not being thankful to God. Four, I want you to see the self-inflicted destruction of unnatural conduct. Very simply in verses 26 and 27 from chapter 1, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And the Supreme Court has only caught up with our society in their recent decision. Now, it's unfolding more rapidly. More and more and more people are willing to say that that which is natural is not the standard, but that which is unnatural is actually natural. We talked about the desensitization of the human heart. Little at a time, exposure to that which is illogical, it's unnatural, it's not normal. Little at a time, you call it normal. Pretty soon you start to believe it's normal. So although man cannot believe that God does not exist, he can believe that that which is unnatural is natural. 
And that's what has happened. And so there is what we refer to as the self-inflicted destruction of unnatural conduct, meaning, uh, in referring to Paul's words at the end of verse 27, they are receiving the due penalty of their error. What's that? The axiomatic sadness of the person who's given himself over to unnatural conduct. Using the word gay to pretend that homosexual conduct is actually a happy experience. There's nothing happy about it. It's utterly and completely sad, and this is what, that's what Paul's referring to. It's an axiomatic reality. It's an obvious reality. The person who engages in that which is unnatural initially realizes it's unnatural. This is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. But that desensitization ultimately results in the furthering of the due penalty of their error. And there's more to it than that. We can logically assume that the disease that we call AIDS is clearly the result of this conduct. They've received the personal due penalty. You say, but what about all the non-homosexuals who have experienced the disease of AIDS? Did, are they being punished for that? We're not saying it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship between the punishment and the sin. We're saying that worldwide, AIDS primarily fell upon those who were engaged in homosexual conduct. Five, the penalty on an unrighteous culture, the whole group, so to speak, the community, who turned themselves over to an unnatural conduct. Paul says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And so we call this the penalty on an unrighteous culture. What's the penalty? Death. That's the penalty. You see this in 1 Corinthians 6. The homosexual will not inherit the kingdom of God, but nor will the thief, nor the heterosexual sinner. But the point here is that those who are engaging in that which is unnatural, calling it natural. They've been turned over, and so eternal torment is imminent. Can that be turned around? Absolutely. Why? Because there is therefore no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that should be the platform on which all of our thinking rests. Number six, point number six, I want you to see the judgment of God on the inexcusable hypocrite. And as I've mentioned a number of times, this is where Paul takes a different turn in our study. This text points out the hypocrisy of those who judge others. And it's not simply a matter of judging others with regard to sexual deviancy. That's not the issue. It is that those who think they are better than those who engage in sexual deviancy 
are clearly unaware of their own sinful practices and the judgment of God rests on them. Listen, therefore you have no excuse, Paul says, chapter 2, verse 1, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. He's not talking about sexual deviance here, deviancy. He's talking about what I just read to you from the end of chapter 1. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Who is he referring to here? Go back to verse 29, chapter 1. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips. They are slanderers. They are haters of God. And they don't necessarily run around with signs that say, I hate God. But they prove that they do in their gossip and in their slander. And they so easily and so readily and so quickly judge others with the sins that they themselves are committed to. This is maybe the most important thing that you and I need to hear from this message this morning. The hypocrisy, the inexcusable hypocrisy that some will engage in because they think they're better than those who commit homosexual sin results in the certain judgment of God, the same judgment that the homosexual will experience. So maybe this is the more important thing for you and me to think about as we move forward from this message in how we think and how we pray and how we strategize for ministering to a lost and dying community. Paul goes on, as you know, from verse 30 to point out that he's referring to those who are insolent. Insolent simply means rude. It simply means rude. The person who's living a life that he attempts to justify by saying, well, I'm just an honest person. You know, I just tell the truth. While he's actually being insolent, might want to consider the possibility that he sits under the judgment of God because he's not considerate of others. Arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Inventors of evil, that's about as generic as it gets. Privacy of your own home or your own mind. Thinking thoughts that lead to creative practices by which you might actually dismiss the person of God. Gossip, slander, insolence. He says they're disobedient to parents. They're without understanding. They're untrustworthy. And guys, can I just say this to you? Are you reliable? I mean, think about this. Think about the implications. Do you commit to do things and find that people are saying, you know, I don't even expect anything from him anymore. I've asked for certain things to be done, and it just doesn't happen. See, this is a a shot to the heart. And each one of us ought to be thinking about the patterns of our lives. Do we show ourselves to be untrustworthy? How about unloving? Tim Challies wrote an article or posted an article recently called Be Be Careful About Nice People. 
And the whole point of that is that being nice doesn't mean anything. There's nothing wrong with being nice, but it doesn't mean anything. The point is, are you actually loving? Are you willing to speak the truth in love? Do you endeavor to be an encourager to people? Do you take the time to think about how you can creatively and effectively minister to others? Do you, have you established platforms and relationships whereby you are enabled and have the credibility to say the difficult things to people that they need to hear. Why? Because you love them and you know that faithful are the wounds of a friend. He says they're unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Now, this is the deal. He knows that those who practice gossip, they practice slander. They practice insolence. They practice disobedience to parents. He knows these people that engage in these things themselves know that those that they observe doing them are warranting God's eternal wrath. And what do they do? They engage in it in themselves and they approve of it amongst each other. So misery loves company amongst those who are committed to such evil. It's worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So Paul reveals a gut-wrenching overlap and commonality between those turned over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper and those who think they have appeased God because they do not commit the same improper deeds but who are hypocritical, self-righteous, and equally condemned for it. There's a commonality between those two categories of people. And it is that they sit in this moment under the wrath of God of God. This is a striking reality, is it not? And all of us should, should be thinking seriously, not only about whether or not we are guilty of such things, but the degree to which we are helpful to others who are guilty. That may be the greater issue for the larger percentage of people in our church. Do you love those in your life, those to whom you're exposed, enough to gently and carefully and prayerfully attempt to address their hypocrisy? Do you have the credibility? Do you strive? Do you sacrifice? Do you do what's necessary to attempt to have that opportunity to communicate your concern about that person? Point seven, I want you to see the equality of depravity among all men. This is one of the simplest truths in the scripture, and yet one of the most disdained. This is one of the simplest and clearest truths in the word of God, and yet one of the most hated. Why? Because of total depravity. Total depravity is hated because of total depravity. It's the condition of man's heart that leads him to hate what God says about the condition of his heart. We see the current condemnation of those who presume upon God's grace with the life motto that it's better to seek forgiveness than to ask permission. In chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, we see God's sovereignty over evil, that his righteousness and glory are ultimately displayed in man's unrighteousness, and we see man's condemnation for saying, well then, let us do evil that good may come. King Saul learned the hard way that it is better to obey than to sacrifice by having the kingdom stripped from him, his life destroyed, and end in tragedy and spend eternity suffering for it. Why? 
Why is this true of man? Why is it that he can say, let us do good that evil may come, when he sees in the text of Scripture that man's unrighteousness results in the glory of God and the display of God's righteousness? Why? His refusal to believe in total depravity. That's why. He thinks he's better than others deluding himself into thinking that his sin is not as deep and evil as others. Now listen, the person who rejects total depravity doesn't usually say, hey, I'm better than others. He says, I'm better than those who have sinned worse than I have. So he refuses to believe in the equality of depravity among all men. What does Paul say about this, though? What then? Are we better than they? Verse 9. Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. That is equality of total depravity. See, that's the basic condition into which we are all born and the basic condition of the person who manifests his depravity much more greatly than others. The basis of that depravity is identical. The trouble with those who don't believe this is that they think they have appeased God and achieved some level of righteousness in their own works and their own thinking. Therefore, they never really experience the righteousness of Christ. They don't think they need it. They're like the Jews in Romans 10 who fabricated their own righteousness, not recognizing that God's righteousness is the standard. They have a zeal for God but without knowledge. Number eight, I want you to see justification by faith alone for all who believe in the gospel. Justification by faith alone for all who believe in the gospel. Verse 21, chapter 3, Paul says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. And yet, it is not unusual. In fact, it's quite common for you to hear someone proclaim their efforts as the linchpin that resulted in their salvation. Where then is boasting? Where is it? What place is there for boasting? It's non-existent. It's excluded. Now think of it. If you wholeheartedly and firmly believe and rest in the reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if you rest in that, you're going to want to know how to tell people what it means to be in Christ Jesus. 
You don't want to be guilty of leading someone astray by attempting to persuade them while they are condemned, while they're in the flesh, to do something. Just flip this switch. You need to know biblically what needs to take place in their hearts. That's why we've titled this message, Compassion for the Condemned. They need compassion. They don't need you to tell them, here's the the six-step path or the two-step path or the sinner's prayer or whatever by which you avoid condemnation. They need mercy. And if you don't know that, then you... Maybe you don't think that you needed mercy. Maybe you never arrived at the place where you thought you needed mercy. Or maybe you did, and you've looked back on it, and you say, well, mercy's great, but, man, I needed to make a decision. Justification by faith alone for all who believe in the gospel. See, are you inclined? I I am at times. I confess. Are you inclined to believe that there are those who have out-sinned God's grace? Paul says that there is justification by faith alone for all those who believe in the gospel. And if anyone had outsinned God's grace, it was Paul the apostle. If anyone had outsinned God's grace, it's those who were homosexuals in 1 Corinthians 6. But Paul says some of you were. God saves homosexuals. He saves thieves. He saves heterosexual sinners. He saves people who are condemned. He removes the condemnation. He justifies them by faith alone. And if you were to read Romans 4, you would see that the person who works, the person who leans on something he did or does, what does he receive? Does he receive justification? No. He receives his wages. He gets what he deserves. Wages of sin is death. Point number nine. I want you to see the certainty and confirmation of one who is justified by faith alone. The certainty and confirmation of the one who is justified by faith alone. What then shall we say? Chapter four, verse one. That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found... For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Now, just just rest in that. Recognize that the father of Judeo-Christian faith simply believed. A decade and a half after this belief, he was given the sign of circumcision sign didn't come before circumcision did not result in his salvation it was quite the other way around Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness justification by faith alone I read some strange article the other day by an Episcopal priest who attempted to create a dichotomy between the word faith and belief don't believe it they're the same thing Pistos is the Greek term, sometimes translated faith, sometimes translated as belief. But the issue is the person who believes is justified. He rests, he trusts, he has faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, you can be certain that he has received righteousness. How then was it credited, Paul says in verse 10? 
while he was circumcised or uncircumcised, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while circumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Who? All who believe. Verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be without becoming weak in faith. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of the relationship between faith in Christ and practice of that faith. You know that James says that faith without works is dead. He says it very concisely. Paul here says it this way. He says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. He believed that what God promised, God was able to perform, and there he, therefore he lived a life set apart unto the glory of God. He didn't rest in his works. He didn't rest in his thinking. He didn't rest in what he had done, any decision he had made. Abraham rested in the fact that God could do what God promised. And therefore, he lived a life that glorified God. And so, you see the certainty and confirmation of one who is justified by faith alone. The certainty. How can we say that it's certain? Because God predetermined it. God predetermined it. So it's certain. How can we say that it's confirmed? Because Abraham lived it. Abraham's faith, Abraham's salvation was proven in his conduct and in his life. He gave evidence of what God predetermined he would do and what God actually did do. Number 10. Number 10. I want you to see the certain hope and perseverance for the one who is justified by faith alone. So we're moving here to chapter 5. The certain hope and perseverance for the one who is justified by faith alone. So this person has hope and he perseveres. And I intentionally chose the term certain because they are certain. The certain hope and the certain perseverance for the one who is justified by faith alone. Listen to chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we were justified by faith alone. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. See, there is therefore now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because that's true, Paul can speak of the object of his faith. He can speak of the object of Abraham's faith. And say that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he can say that with the upcoming certainty that persecution will come. Listen to what he says in verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Now, you don't know tribulation like you're going to. You know tribulation. You know persecution. You know difficulty. But you don't know the persecution that's coming that is going to refine you the way you need to be refined. You struggle with discouragement. You struggle with gossip. You struggle with bitterness. You struggle with slander. You struggle with laziness. These are questions, by the way. Do you struggle with honesty? Do you struggle with sin? Of course you do. The question is for each of us, what are they? The refining fire is on its way. So you and I can look at what's happening in our society and say, well, they just need to get their act together. We just need to have better laws. I'd like better laws. Don't get me wrong. Better laws are better laws. But they're not going to refine you. What's going to refine you is the God of heaven who justifies the individual by faith. And because he has predetermined in his sovereign providence to grant tribulation, he will perform it. He will bring it to pass. So there is certain hope and there is certain perseverance for the one who is justified by faith alone. Now you watch. You watch. Those who cling to a man-centered theology, a man-made faith, will abandon Christianity. You have my word. You have God's word on that. It will happen. You will see a separation between those who rest in the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ and those who rest in some decision they made. You can be certain of it. That refining fire will come. But there is a certain hope and a certain perseverance for those who are justified by faith alone. Again, verse 3, not only this, we also exult in our tribulations. If I chose Jesus, then I'm just going to choose my way out of this tribulation. Paul says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. You see that? It's the vehicle. It's not the cause. The tribulation doesn't certainly and necessarily result in perseverance, but it is the vehicle by which God produces that perseverance. It's tribulation. And perseverance, proven character. Proven character. The person who is trustworthy, the person who is reliable, the person who is honest, the person who chooses not to gossip, the person who chooses not to slander, the person who chooses for his life to be devoted to humility, receiving personal affliction, receiving things that are intended to be personal as if they are from God. And then this, he says, hope does not disappoint. See that? The person who rests in a man-centered theology is constantly disappointed with changing of circumstances when they go away that he didn't want them to go. His life is a constant disappointment. But hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The work of the Holy Spirit is the work of a constant reminder that there is therefore no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so there's hope. 
the Holy Spirit reminds us of that truth, especially when we memorize that passage. You've seen the certain hope and perseverance for the one who is justified by faith alone. A man-centered theology is bent on and founded in the idea that perseverance is not a certainty. You can leave that faith. The fifth point of Arminianism originally stated that you can lose your salvation. Number 11, point number 11. I want you to see the freedom from sin and newness of life for the one who is justified by faith alone. Freedom from sin and newness of life for the one who is justified by faith alone. Chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's a changed life, but it's not just a changed life. It's a life that reflects the resurrection of Jesus Christ because the individual has been spiritually resurrected knowing that he will one day be physically resurrected. Not just a changed life. Not just better conduct. But he lives in newness of life. He's got victory over sin. He says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Say, well, I'm not freed from sin. Well, maybe you are and maybe you aren't. As you know, in chapter 7, which we're going to get into in a moment, Paul talks about being sold into bondage to sin. But the reality is, for the person who is no longer under condemnation and he's in Christ Jesus, he is not enslaved to sin. There are some necessary ingredients for that to be proved in a person's life. He needs sound teaching. He needs fellowship with godly people. He needs to exercise his spiritual gifts within the body. He needs to want, he needs to long for correction and instruction and rebuke. He wants that because he knows he's not yet refined as he one day will be. But he who has died, right, he's freed from sin. No longer enslaved to it. And I suggest the person who's not freed from sin is not dead to his sin. He's alive to sin. And maybe he's developed some practices in his life, enough you know, good practices that it covers over the quietness and the, the sinfulness of the private practices in his heart and his life. But there is freedom from sin and newness of life for the one who is justified by faith alone. In chapter 7, I want you to see point 12, the struggle and solution to the flesh. Point number 12, the struggle and solution to the flesh. 
verse 14, chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. This is Paul's lament over the reality that the flesh continues to have influence on him and all believers. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. It is the work of liberal theologians who want you to believe that Paul is talking about when he was first a Christian. Not true. He's 20 years a veteran Christian here. He's quite mature, and he's speaking in the present tense. Verse 16, but I do the very thing I do not want to do. I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Why? New nature. Not two natures, new nature, affected by the flesh. 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of sin and the law of death. You are no longer under condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. This is a beautiful picture. And it is a picture that you not only should rest in, but that you should hope for, for those that you know who are yet condemned. You see, if you are in Christ, you have freedom from sin and you have newness of life. But you also engage in the struggle and you know the solution to the flesh. And you practice that solution. You set your mind on the law of God. You will not be satisfied with the reality that the flesh defaults to the law of sin. And you fight it. And you fight it with the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Well, number 13. Number 13. I want you to see freedom from the condemnation for those whom God loves and called according to his purpose. Chapter 8, 1 and 2. You know, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This is verse 15. You've received a spirit of adoption. What? Yeah, you've been adopted. You didn't adopt God. You didn't choose Christ. 
in the same way that the illustration depicts. If you've been adopted, if you have adopted a child, if you know someone who's gone through or is going through that process, you know that the child is simply a recipient of that blessing. You know, the three-year-old, the infant, the six-year-old doesn't say, um, okay, list of parents, let's see. Yeah, I'll take those. No, the parents do that, and that's the picture. You've received a spirit of adoption. You're called according to God's purpose. And so you cry out to him, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To whom is this blessing promised? To those who've been adopted. Nothing about choosing Christ. Nothing about asking him into your heart. Nothing about achieving God's pleasure with your conduct or your words. Verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Isn't that a beautiful question? It necessitates Bible study. You would actually believe what God says about his predetermined plan to pour his special love out upon some. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And as you know, Paul goes on to clearly explain that no one and no thing, no one will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, point 14. I want you to see the unceasing grief and confidence of the one whose hope is in the sovereign, merciful God. I want you to see the unceasing grief and confidence of the one whose hope is in the sovereign, merciful God. Chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And so there is an unceasing grief for the lost in the heart of the person who rests in the sovereign, merciful God of heaven. He has an unceasing grief. Paul rested in the sovereign mercy of God. And that did not lead him to the hyper-Calvinism that says we must not then evangelize. Why would we do that? The sarcasm, the insolence, 
of the one who says that if God is sovereignly merciful, then why would we do that, is expressive of the fact that he is yet condemned. He's disinterested in the compassion of God for others because he hasn't received it. In fact, he's rejected it. He said, I didn't need compassion. I chose Christ. The unceasing grief and confidence of the one whose hope is in the sovereign, merciful God sets the Christian apart from the pseudo-Christian, the pretend Christian, the one who likes the amenities of the Christian faith but wants nothing to do with sacrifice and wants nothing to do with the reality that persecution is coming and we are to welcome it knowing that it's going to result in hope if we rest in God's sovereign mercy. In verse 8, Paul says, It's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So if God says it does not depend on the man who wills, can evangelism depend upon the man who wills? If God says it depends on his mercy, can evangelism depend upon the man who wills? If God says it does not depend on the man who wills, is the man who says he chose Christ based on his free will even a Christian? If God says it depends on his mercy, wouldn't the one who has received God's mercy credit God entirely? If God says it depends on his mercy, wouldn't the one who has received God's mercy plead with God for his mercy on the condemned rather than hating the condemned? Perhaps the one who believes and boasts in his free will and whitewashes his total depravity is himself in need of God's mercy, but rejects it simply because he doesn't think he ever needed it. Point number 15, the faithful and willing heart, mouth, and feet of the one whose hope is in the sovereign, merciful God. The faithful and willing heart, mouth, and feet of the one whose hope is in the sovereign, merciful God. Chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. Is a willing heart. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. 
that is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. You see, there must be a faithful heart and a faithful mouth. There is a faithful heart and a faithful mouth of the person who is no longer condemned. And he wants other people to not any longer be condemned. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the person who is saved has a faithful mouth. He tells people what it means to be saved. How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher, a proclaimer? doesn't need to be a guy who stands behind a pulpit. How will they hear without someone who will tell them? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so you see the faithful and willing heart, mouth, and feet of the one whose hope is in the sovereign, merciful God. You won't see that. You will not see that in the person whose hope is not in the sovereign, merciful God. You'll see all kinds of arm twisting. You know, the altar call that pleads with people to come down and make a decision rather than to cry out to God for mercy. There's a massive, chasmic difference. See, although God has used the non-Jewish elect the Gentile elect, to produce a remorseful jealousy in Israel. And while they remain obstinate, he still holds out his hand of mercy to this obstinate people. Listen to this, verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Did you hear it? A people that did not seek me. You remember Romans 3. No one seeks after the Lord. And so when we tell people, all you got to do is just seek after him, what are we telling them? We're, we're lying to them. We must cry out to God for mercy, and we must tell them you need mercy. You cannot rest in anything you have done or anything you think. You must believe. And God will grant belief to all those who believe. Point 16. You're wondering how high I can count, I'm sure. <laughs> Point 16, the exaltation of God, the equipping of the saints, and the evangelism of the lost. It's a beautiful picture here. You've worked through this in your study guide. If you've already started working on it, if not, you will this week. The exaltation of God, the equipping of the saints, and the evangelism of the lost. First, under this point, I want you to see the exaltation of God. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now you ask, and you be honest, is my life 
spiritual work of worship. A spiritual act of service for the exaltation of God. And if you're in Christ, you have to say yes. You have to say yes with problems and with weakness and with failings, but not in my Savior. Because what he promised he would do, he has performed. And if he began that work, Philippians 1.6, in you, he will complete it. And so what do you do? You rest in him. You rest in who he is and what he has done. You go back to him. Like in Isaiah 44 that we looked at in our study in idolatry this week, verse 22, return to me. Why? For I have swept your sins away as a cloud. <laughs> For there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if that's true of you, you want that to be true of those you love, as Paul did. He prayed unceasingly for them. He had unceasing grief for them while he rested in God's sovereign mercy. And all of that exalts God. And that's the point. Are you devoted to the glory of God? Of course you are if you're in Christ. And you say, but, but I fail and so do I. I want you not only to see the exalting of God, I want you to see the equipping of the saints. In verse 3, Romans 12, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. That's a very clear and practical statement. But to think so as to have sound judgment. You see, this is really the problem. Even for Christians, especially new Christians, immature Christians, they think more highly of themselves, and so they don't have clear thinking. They rest in a man-centered theology because they think more highly of themselves than they ought, and their thinking is askew everywhere else, and yet they think they're wise. And maybe they're articulate, and maybe they sound wise to the unwise. He says... Yeah, not to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And then verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Is that your heart? Do you long for that? If so, you'll endeavor to be involved in that way. You see, the person who's no longer condemned and is in Christ loves the body of Christ. He wants to exercise his spiritual gifts. Paul goes on to say, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And as we always say when we talk about things like this, there are occasionally extenuating circumstances in people's lives. But I want you to ask yourself this question. How long have you been in an extenuating circumstance if you're not involved in the body of Christ, exercising your spiritual gifts with the body. How long do you think God will allow or have ordained for that extenuating circumstance to exist? And ask another question. How much time do you spend mingling with and hanging out with people who are not Christians, people who are not part of the body of Christ? You see how important this is? I think too often we are hypercritical of those who have extenuating circumstances we don't trust that the Lord and his sovereignty and the kindness of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit is going to work in the proper timing in people's lives. But I think the pendulum can swing far in the other direction to the point where we just let people off the hook because they say, well, I'd like to do that, but, you know, my circumstances. Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. 
abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And as you know, this is in the context of the body of Christ. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in the brotherly love. To what does that extend? Your local church. How could it possibly extend to the Catholic church, the universal church? You can't possibly do that. But it can and it must in your local church. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. So you see the edification or the equipping of the saints. You've seen the exalting of God, and very important, we must see the evangelism of the lost in chapter 12, verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Now, you could say that would apply in the body of Christ, and that's true, but keep listening. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. All men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's, that's believers and unbelievers, right? Never take your own revenge. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You know, God keeps the score. You don't need to. But if your enemy is hungry, see, that's the unbeliever. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's evangelism. You see the flow? What I want you to see this morning from Romans is the flow. Resting in a sovereign, merciful God, displayed in a faithful life, committed to the body of Christ, therefore having a platform upon which to win the lost. Point number 17, the importance of the purity of the church. Chapter 13 Verse 13 and 14, Paul says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Now, just when you think you are off the hook. Well, I don't, I mean, carousing and drunkenness, I don't do that. Sexual promiscuity and sensuality, hmm. Maybe not what the world would call sexual promiscuity, but what about sensuality? Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. Not in strife. In jealousy. Now we're getting real close to home. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. I would say that's probably one of the top three passages in the Bible you ought to memorize. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. Do with and do without. Focus on Christ. Separate yourself from things that are anti-Christ. Separate yourself from things that do not influence you to love Jesus Christ. Chapter 14, verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. This is maybe as practical as anything in the Bible. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. This is where... Paul is pointing to the need to be willing to do without certain foods if it offends your brother. You're not walking in love if you'll say, I don't care what other people think. Verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. 
Interesting, huh? Well, I mean, he's just weak. So help him not be weak. Love him more than you love yourself. Verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Chapter 15, verse 14, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. I, I really, really want you to see here the importance of the purity of the church the willingness and the ability to rest in the goodness of the righteousness of Jesus Christ in you to be willing to bring the word of God to bear upon others for the sake of the purity of the church. Chapter 16, verse 3, Paul closes with an affirmation of specific believers. He names names. He names a lot of names. Here he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. This letter is not only to the Jews. Verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. There comes a time, even in the body of Christ, where you must say to those who persist in the rejection of sound truth that there must be a division between you and them. For such men are slaves, right? He really boils it down here. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. You on watch for that in our church? I hope so. I hope you're on watch remembering that there is therefore no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you hold that hope out for those who would create dissension that you'd be willing to speak the truth in love to them. Paul says, verse 19, for the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what's evil. And he gives this very hopeful statement here. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He will crush Satan. Now, think of it. If you did the math, if you looked at everything that's going on in our world, you would say God's not going to crush Satan. Look at where things are headed. There's a whole lot more of them than us. Jesus says narrow is the path. But if you believe what the Bible says about the sovereignty of God, you know that he will crush Satan. We will have the joy of worshiping him in perfection one day. You know this, Paul closes out his letter with this beautiful statement. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Friends, beloved, we must tell people to come to this God of mercy on his terms. And if we do, he will in no way cast them out. We must tell them that while they are condemned in their unjust, unrighteous state, he will justify them by faith and by faith alone. 
And what about the self-righteous yet unrighteous, self-inflated hypocrite who trusts in his fairy tale free will and his pretentious belief that he was born with a good but damaged nature? What do we do with him, her? He or she, too, may receive mercy from the God who has mercy upon whom he has mercy. But only if he or she will do so on God's terms. Only on God's terms. How can a man repent of his total depravity for which he deserves eternal torment if he refuses to believe what Scripture says about him? He needs your faithful heart. He needs your faithful mouth. He needs your faithful feet. He needs you to proclaim to him the truth of the power of the gospel to eliminate and remove condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, the hope that radiates and emanates from our hearts when we think these truths is astounding, and yet it pales in comparison to the astounding reality of who you are and what you have promised to perform and the accuracy with which you have performed it. Lord, I pray that you'd do a scathing and encouraging work in our church, that each of us would be willing to set aside our selfish, self-centered desires and be willing to ask the question, how might I today be faithful to Jesus Christ, proclaiming the reality that there is no condemnation for the condemned if they would be in Christ? that we might live in the reality of the power of the predetermined work of the gospel that you in your sovereign mercy have proclaimed and established. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us to be set apart, that the difference could be obvious, that we in tribulation would not only rest in, but that we would exhibit the hope of justification by faith alone. Amen.